and welcome to the FreightVine podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at Chainalytics, and today I'm joined by Steve Ellett, SVP Supply Chain Design at Chainalytics. Now, I asked Steve to join me today for this podcast because he's one of the top experts in the world in supply chain network design. He's been doing it for over 25 years, and transportation, that many of us don't realize, is one of the most critical factors in designing supply chains. So it's a natural connection that anyone in transportation understands how supply chains are designed and developed. So hope you enjoy the conversation. And following my talk with Steve, I'll be joined by Dr. Inami Yub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, Steve. Hey, happy to be here, Chris. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, always, always. So, Steve, you've been working in optimization-based supply chain network design for over a quarter of a century now, so you must feel really <laughs> old. Um, but you've been uh, developing software, implementing solutions. So tell me, how much has the software changed since you started in this domain? Right. Well, you know, it's still mainly MIP, right? The the tools have improved. The the modeling tools themselves have improved, but probably not really as much as some of the surrounding software and certainly the hardware, right? The data handling, as an example, right? if you think about the data that we have to deal with, the ERP systems, are they tend to be better. They tend to be more queryable. Companies have more sophisticated data warehouses than they used to. So we're getting access to data better. And even data blending tools, you know, things like Alteryx and Lamasas Data Guru and just SQL itself, these are all really powerful tools that we use that we didn't really use any of those when we started doing this, you know, on the order of call quarter century ago, as you said. And, <laughs> you know, on the that's more on the input side, right? On the output side, think about data visualization tools, you know, Tableau and other business intelligence tools. They really help tell the story better. You know, these models are getting more and more complex. And and telling that story can be pretty hard, right? Telling that story in a way that executives can understand it and that we can understand it, frankly, is challenging. And those visualization tools are, are pretty critical. You know, the question was about software, but I don't want to belittle the hardware point, right? We, we tend to take, you know, Moore's Law and those kinds of things for granted, but we really are building much, much larger math problems, you know, than we used to. We're building models now that we couldn't really have solved five years ago. You know, 20 plus years ago, we were doing distribution only questions. Where should the next warehouse go? You know, simpler stuff like that, which we still do. But most of what we're doing is a lot more granular and a lot more frequent getting into production line decisions. What should we make on this line? Where should this next line go? What kind of line should it be? You know, the mix of products on a line, even from kind of fast movers to slow mover kinds of questions. So back to the software side, though. I'll also mention, of course, you know, your listeners probably are aware of, you know, these predictive technologies, you know, applying machine learning and things like right, right. FMIC. And we, we refer to those kinds as, as development of design data. We contrast design data, which is data that you don't have historically against, you know, historical data that you do know. And something like FMIC has been a game changer for us. I mean, it really has been predicting freight costs on lanes that you don't ship on historically is substantial. You know, it's not uncommon for these models to be two thirds to four fifths of the cost in these models to be freight and getting that right really matters. Yeah, Steve. So that's, that's an interesting point. Cause I bet a lot of the people in the FMIC don't realize that one of the reasons why it was started in the first place 
was to help assist with supply chain network design projects to give you that visibility into what a market price for a truckload freight move would be. Absolutely. And, and that's the first thing I thought of when you showed it to me, whatever it's been 15 plus years ago, it would how much of an impact that would have. We were using similar techniques, but we were only able to do it with one company's data at a time. And so the idea right. of taking multiple companies' data and putting them together has been powerful. So it's interesting. I just want to make sure the readers or the listeners understand when you said an MIP, it's a mixed integer program, a mixed integer linear program. So the optimization hasn't changed that much. Hardware is faster. And so visualization, you talked about that. You can handle more complex things. Has that made the process longer or shorter? So over the last, again, quarter century, Steve, have these engagements gotten longer or shorter because of this improved technology? Right. I'd say it's a combination. I think you can do things, the same thing you did 25 years ago, you can do that much faster now. But because we're good analysts and we want to explore more, we're pushing the envelope and doing a lot more. We're making things more detailed and, and diving in more deeply, You know, getting inside a building, getting inside the operations of a warehouse or the operations of a plant, getting at the line level. And so we tend to uh, be a lot shorter when something is very, very simple, but we have the option to also spend those extra cycles and resources, you know, and, and just be more robust. So let's talk about traditional supply chain design, because as you mentioned, transportation costs are such an integral part of that. And if you're in the transportation uh, sector of your company in that function, you should understand and be really close friends with people doing your network design because you are a big component of that. But the traditional approach using Mixinger program is to minimize cost. That was how it's traditionally done. Is that still valid in most situations you're seeing today, Steve? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, cost minimization is still the most common objective for a specific scenario, but the goal is broader, right? The goal is to understand what is the minimum cost configuration under a wide variety of conditions to make informed overall decisions considering service levels and risk and implementation cost and upheaval to the business, you know, we focus a lot more on the cost and service trade-offs than we do on just purely minimizing costs. You know, companies these days aren't always looking for just the lowest cost. They're worried about, you know, the Amazon factor. How, how can I mm -hmm. improve service in order to sell more? We often think of, for example, we think of price elasticity, like the effect that price has on demand, like the higher the price, the lower the demand. Companies have started to shift to think more about the service elasticity of demand also, right? The faster the service, the more that I'll sell. Right. And so it's not just about minimizing costs, but in a particular scenario, that's still the objective. We just do lots and lots of different scenarios. Right. That's really interesting. You brought up the service elasticity because here at MIT, I've been asked that a lot for, you know, if I provide one day versus two versus three, how will my demand change? Have you been able to actually capture the service elasticity? Well, the challenge is getting the organization to agree on what it is, right? Mm. If you, the sales force will say, hey, if you, if you make service worse, I'm going to sell a lot less. And you say, great, well, how much less? And they usually can tell you. They said, okay, what if I improve it? What if I take it from three days to one day? How much more are you going to sell? And then they start to waffle, right? They start to not be willing to commit to that. So the question really isn't whether we can model it. The question is about what do we believe that it is, right? For right. price elasticity, there's straightforward ways to go and test it. Companies do this all the time. They raise the price and lower the price to test it and see what the impact is so they can quantify it. Service elasticity is more difficult. So we can model it. It's just if we can get the team to agree on what it is. Because I know there's been some uh, look at like uh, time windows. As you expand the available time window, 
people are willing, you know, to be charged a little less because that gives you, the manufacturer, the distributor, more flexibility in scheduling your routes and things. But it's it's one of these challenges that I don't know exactly how to catch it. If we had it, it'd be great to use in a model. But it seems <laughs> yeah. like something that, that will differ by customer, by company, it by does. product almost. No, it absolutely does. And it's hard to capture, right? I think we're pretty confident about our ability to model it, but understanding mm-hmm. what it is yeah. and having confidence in what it is, is the challenge. Yeah. So one of the other challenges that traditional approaches have, they're, they're awesome. They find the, you know, they'll do anything to save a penny, right? Unless, you know, you can model these things, but what about uncertainty? Um, such as, you know, the COVID-19, the pandemic we're facing right now, or tariffs or trade wars, natural disasters. How do you incorporate planning for uncertainty using these deterministic models? It's a great question. It's something we think an awful lot about. I think there's a great uh, Eisenhower quote that uh, plans are nothing. Planning is everything. Right. And there's actually a uh, there's the Mike Tyson version of that too, which is everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And and that's the way that we think about this, right? It's it's not just important to do a plan once and look out for five years. It's important to have a process to do this all the time, right? The best strategy certainly is to have a flexible network and make sure that you're modeling flexible options and considering flexible options. So for example, having a mix of 3PLs or a mix of carriers or a mix of some common carrier and some private fleet, for example, and not putting all the eggs in one basket, because certainly the math inside these optimization engines is going to take advantage of economies of scale and tend to put things together. And so we as practitioners have to bring the idea of No, we want to test these less concentrated ideas and let's then figure out how much more expensive they are and let's go justify doing that. And then the other important piece of that, that is it used to be really common to do these, a model, let's say once for the next three to five years and then do it again three to five years down the road when it's time to do it again. We're we're seeing that timeline really shrink. We're moving more toward live models, toward doing this work all the time, which means If we do a network model today and we say, well, here's what we think year four looks like today, we have a pretty good idea, but we're going to have a much better idea what year four looks like in year three. So we want to continue to look at it every year and we're going to have more confidence about things that are closer than we are about things that are further away. But that tells you just to not stop, right? It tells you to do this all the time and embed this in a business process. And many companies are doing that and many companies are trying to do that. You mentioned that uh, optimization likes to put all the eggs in one basket because baskets are expensive, right? It looks to concentrate, but managers, executives like that as well. How have you seen the conversation to convince people that a robust solution, which will always cost more than the blue sky, most efficient solution? How do you get that argument through to managers who are looking to lower cost? Because they're going to have to pay a little bit more in quote, you know, insurance. No, absolutely. And I think that you know, that's one of the things that disasters or disruptions mm-hmm. like what we're seeing now with the virus, they do remind us to pay attention to risk. When we don't have these disruptions, it's easy to be lulled into this false sense of security that everything is going to look like today and be incrementally different than today. And that's not necessarily the case. And so I think that the tools don't do this part for you, right? The modeling tools don't do this. You have to be aware of this and apply constraints and specifically test out 
scenarios to avoid overconcentration because under a steady state and under a normal day-to-day activity, concentration is good. We take advantage of economies of scale all the time in business and our personal lives and everything. And so, you know, we had a client as an example, it was an explosives company. And of course, they're thinking about risk probably more than most because of the nature of their product. But the whole analysis was around, we have X dollars of capital that we can spend and we want to spend it to minimize risk. What would we do? How would we spend that? And it was fascinating. And that doesn't happen that often. Most people aren't asking that question, but it was a fantastic exercise, right? It was basically risk minimization, not operating cost minimization. And it was amazing. And we've incorporated that kind of logic into a lot of the studies that we do, Mm -hmm. even when it's not being specifically asked, because I do think it is important. And the tools really aren't there to to do that part for you. Yeah, that's interesting, because that almost follows the mathematical approach for something called robust optimization, where you have a budget and you allocate where that budget goes to provide you the most robust solution. There's also a parallel interesting, I just thought of this as you were talking, in transportation. There are some companies that will procure transportation in the most efficient manner, and they know that when the crisis hits, when prices go up, they will pay more than the market. But they're willing to bet that there are more blue skies days than rainy days. Have you seen this in network design, where people say, yeah, I know I'm going to pay more in a crisis, but I think generally things are going to be ahead. And overall, maybe they make out better. Yeah. I think the way that shows up in supply chain design is just the amount of flexible space or the amount mm. of flexible options you're going to have, right? The, the ultimately flexible supply chain would be lots of short-term leases on buildings and lots right. of 3PLs where you could have the contract structure to be in and out easily without penalties and have space there to expand into. Those are going to be more expensive, right? And so Finding that balance is what we do every day and find the tolerance balance or the risk tolerance, if you want to call it that, of the organization is certainly a part of that, right? Putting everything into purchased buildings and everything into long-term leases means you're less nimble. All right. So let's go. I'm going to go back now to something you were talking before about planning frequency, a frequency of running models. It seems like you're not going to do a new plan every day, right? And it seems like you want to tie your modeling, your decision-making to the switching time you have. So if you own all your facilities and you can't do anything for six months, does it make sense to do something more frequently than that? Or how do you know the right frequency of this kind of modeling? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of the time, what we'll do is we'll have the same model structure and we'll be able to use that same model structure for long-term questions as well as more near-term questions by just changing the constraints. So for example, if we're looking at something very strategic, we'll have the constraints wide open and say, well, look, you can open and close plants. You can change the crewing levels of these lines in the plants and Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But when we do that same model, when the other, let's say we do that model four times a year, maybe once a year you do it where you're looking more wide open. The other three times a year that you do it would be more constrained and say, hey, look, we're not going to shift crewing around. We're not going to shift open and close buildings, but there still is a Okay. A lot that you can optimize there. You can still decide what's made where. You can change assignments of customers to warehouses. And the example I gave was quarterly, but you could make the same discussion monthly or even more tactically. So you could tie the decisions that you turn on or off based on your ability to actually make that change. That's right. Or the desire. Sure. I mean, there may be situations oh, right, where right. we've had clients just say, hey, look, we're not going to switch around our our plant cruise and, and say, hey, this quarter or this month, it's going to be three shifts. Next month, it's two. Next month, it's back to three and try to hire people and bring them on and off all the time. We're just not going to do that to our people, even right. though the optimization says that might be the thing to do. They've said, we're not going to do that. And so we can 
deal with that in the models by just simply limiting the choices. So let's talk about COVID-19 now. What have you seen over the last, say, three months? Uh, First, did anyone see this coming in 2019? And has anyone made any changes or what kind of things are you being asked to look at now, first quarter of 2020? Sure, sure. I don't, I certainly don't think that anybody saw this specific thing coming, but I think we're always doing modeling around what if this happens or that happens, right? There's a couple different ways that I, I think about it, right? There are changes that are, that we're testing risk of just changes to known pieces of data, for example, subtle changes. So what if demand goes up? What if demand goes down? You know, 5%, 15, 20% could be fuel, could be demand. Those kinds of sensitivities are really common. And there can be other ones that are more of like plan B kinds of scenarios that you can test and say, well, what if this port is shut down? What if this plant is hit by a tornado? What if this happens, this happens? And I can develop a pretty robust set of plan B options. And right. But it still is important to have this live model up and running that's refreshed with data all the time to answer the ad hoc kinds of questions, because no one's going to have this particular scenario as the plan B, right? The common ones will be there. But if you look at some of the, I read the other day, I think it's um, Apple was moving to shift uh, a large portion of their iOS devices uh, from Shenzhen, I believe it was to Taiwan. I mean, that undertaking, that plan had to be there. Right. That plan wasn't something they thought up that day when the news broke. Right. That plan had to be there for something. They didn't necessarily know what it would be if it was going to be, you know, something geopolitical or a virus or whatever. But that plan existed uh, or they wouldn't be able to be pulling it off. Right. So there's those are the two kinds of things. Right. We don't we're not going to be able to predict everything, but we can certainly test out a lot of different options in the scenarios and make sure that we build the models with as much flexibility as we can and and the network, the resulting networks with as much flexibility as we can to be able to have as close of a plan B as possible and also to just be able to model on the fly. Right. And and so the challenge here with COVID-19, it's not just a supply disruption, right? Getting things from China. It's also a huge demand disruption. And it seems like it's almost going to be a sequencing things because right now we're just starting to feel the shortage of products coming to the U.S. because things would have been on the on the water for three weeks. Um, but it's almost like there's this lag in there as well. Have you considered that? Well, no, absolutely. It's, it reminds me a little bit of um, it's probably more severe. But when we were doing fuel cost modeling, fuel costs were rising a few years ago and then they fell quite a bit. And so we were commonly doing modeling of, okay, what happens if fuel prices go up 5%, up 10%, down, you know, and maybe 25%, something like that. But what that often ignores is the interconnected factor, right? So what if oil prices double? Well, I can change the freight cost component in a model that reflects oil prices doubling, but that doesn't do anything by itself to what are the broader economic impacts of fuel price doubling and what's that going to do to my demand in the second order and third order and what's the labor market going to look like if that happens and and all of these downstream changes and that's kind of what I think you're getting at now is that we might be able to say in a scenario that we do ahead of time okay here's this plan b option if this happens here's the model input change but the real harder part the part that requires more expertise and more thought about it is well, what's the second order change and the third order change if that happens? And many other components of this network are going to change rather than just that fuel price. 
Yeah, but that's something that a model won't tell you. That has to be input, right? Because that's that's something yes. that requires expertise uh, of and knowledge of your own industry, your company, your customers. Boy, that's a hard thing to uh, to determine. Have you had any luck with that? It's very hard, and I think that's part of the challenge. Is that's one of the things that you know that's really challenging is to say it's easy to run sensitivities around small changes to inputs that you could assume don't right. materially impact the other inputs. It's a much different thing to say, this is an input that's critical. We think it's going to change, you know, by an order of magnitude, and therefore it's going to change these 25 other inputs or maybe hundreds or thousands of other inputs. Right. So yeah, that that's certainly challenging. And I think there, you're probably right. You get into that reluctance of, well, I'm way down the decision tree now and I'm kind of being, right. what's the probability of this one thing happening? So it does become hard. And, you know, it's something I think about the, the airlines right now. I mean, was there a contingency oh my gosh, yeah. for revenue dropping to zero for the next quarter? There's no, yeah. there's no contingency plan that I'm aware of for that, right? And you can do certain things. You can say, well, look, let's put more eggs in, in the flexible baskets. So we can get out of contracts or we can get in and out of this. But at a certain point, the, the change is just too great to have been, you know, reasonably considered. Yeah. So what's interesting is because everything you do is highly mathematical, right? The optimization, I mean, it's, it's slick math, but a lot of the inputs come from that it's resting on is really judgments here. And you're, you're getting almost to the pointing out the need to, in addition to doing this, this great modeling to really think about your problem or your situation in a different way. And this is where scenario planning comes in, which is something we've done up here at MIT, a lot of and it's thinking about not predicting what's going to happen, but helping you better prepare for these, you know, whether it's a black swan or something else. And this is a technique that's been used by UPS, many, many different companies. But one of the things that it helps you separate is something you brought up earlier, Steve, is that, you know, while no one was planning on a specific event for happening, they looked at the effect for, for Apple. It's like what, you know, I would need to move manufacturing out of China and move to another location that could be caused by a pandemic, by a trade war, by many of these other things. And so instead of focusing on predicting these events, you think about, well, how will these different things affect my company? And there's really only a handful of things. And then you start building models and scenarios on those. So I guess what I'm saying is we're seeing more of a, of an inclusion of some of these qualitative techniques scenario planning with these highly quantitative techniques. And you really need to have expertise in both. Would that make sense to you? No, absolutely. That's a, that's a great, great way to put it. And I, th I think you're right. I mean, I think that a lot of the work that's being done out in the world is is incomplete or, or otherwise flawed. I mean, this is one of the issues, right? People that can use a modeling tool, maybe not the same people that can think about these broader questions right. and implications. So no, you're absolutely right. So last question, where do you see supply chain network design and the, this modeling effort going forward in the next three to five years? I think we're going to continue to make strides in scalability of models, building larger and larger models, solving them more quickly, which is going to open up a lot more doors, Th complex things that we've talked about, about batch sizes and complex things like multi-stop routing and complex things like combining inventory optimization at the same time will become more commonplace as the speed increases. I think we'll see more interconnectedness to the upstream and downstream processes that we have to connect to, right? The data is becoming more 
and more available from on the input side, on the content development side as well. You know, innovations like FMIC like, will continue getting better estimates. And then on the output side, we're going to continue to see improvements around what do we do with the answers and who gets the answers and where do they go and how, and how frequently are we doing this? And it's going to become, many companies are already doing this, but it's going to become more commonplace to do this on an ongoing basis so that we don't stop doing this. It's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge, right? When you get to the end, you start over and you paint it again, right? They're, they're never done. And it's the same thing with network modeling. It's something that's just a continuous process now in many companies, and that's going to continue to spread. I think it's become more commonplace than it is now. There's still a lot of companies today that do this uh, once in a while, two or three years or two years or whatever the interval is. I think that's going to start to reduce. The tools are going to you know, continue to get better. I think companies are uh, investing a bit. I, I worry a little bit that the investment is around making them easy or applying the technology to non-supply chain design, non-traditional supply chain design kinds of problems, because there is more money to be made putting these tools on more and more desks, which might mean getting into some other kinds of things like procurement optimization or, you know, more tactical planning, those kinds of things. So we got to make sure that we stay focused on supply chain design itself as well and not, not take the eye off that ball. Well, great. Well, thanks, Steve. I enjoyed talking with you as always. Appreciate your time and insights. And everyone, please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Inam Ayub. Thanks, Chris. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for March 26, 2020. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. As we all know, in today's market, we are in an unprecedented market, which is primarily driven by the coronavirus. And we've been talking about this as we were seeing how it's uh, unfolding in China. Of course, in the last two weeks, it has uh, reached us and we have seen the, all the changes that it has caused from an overall supply chain perspective, replenishments, and of course, end of the day, it bleeds into truckload. From a truckload perspective, we are seeing the active rates for dry van temp control and inner model to be, uh, is currently flat and to hold flat in the foreseeable future. The spot markets are definitely spiking and uh, it's driven primarily by the additional demand that is required to replenish all the essentials and all the panic buys that we are seeing in the market today. Yeah, so it's 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 a crazy market, Enam. It seems like both supply and demand are a little uncertain, right? On the supply side, a lot of carriers and drivers are being much more cautious. Have you noticed any of that? Yeah, definitely. I think the carriers are cautious. And actually, when we say carriers, it actually goes down to the driver level. But also, I think it's it's adding a lot of confusion because, you know, each mm. each area is changing their own rules, right? And, and the timings and everything. So I think it's it's creating a lot of headache for planning and execution as well. Yeah. And I would think especially uh, different areas, if you look at Washington, New York State, and now New Orleans, I, I don't know if I'd want to go in there if I was a driver. And so it's varying very much by the different regions. Also, I think Pennsylvania and some other states are, are limiting their rest stops as well. So it's not as welcoming an environment anymore for trucking. Exactly. And also, I think even at the, at the loading unloading docks, right, I think shippers are working to minimize the contact of the drivers. But unless the driver is 
you know, comfortable and absolutely sure what they're reaching uh, or going to face. I think they, they are cautious. And then on the demand side, uh, you've got a really a mixed mixed uh, bag there because, you know, if you look at manufacturing, they're down. They're not really producing, especially durables right now or general retail. But some of the retailers that deal with uh, grocery or essential goods, they're they're still peaking. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think everything, primarily the demand shifted towards the essential side, and then everything else is in a standstill. Uh, so I think uh, unless something, you know, and it all it all depends on how long this is going to last. Right. right? I think that's right. that's the biggest issue. But I think um, looking at some uh, talking to some grocers, you know, there was that big peak initially. You know, people getting their toilet paper and you know, kind of hoarding, but that's essentially just advanced buying. And so I think there's two things going on there. People are consuming more groceries because they're not going out to restaurants. Obviously, the restaurant uh, industry has been collapsed over the last two weeks. But then also, I think the hoarding instinct is going to slow down. And so maybe we'll see a dip in demand. So maybe it was just an advanced buy. And these spikes we've seen will kind of settle out to status quo. I think so. I, I think unless we see this hold for a while and somehow it triggers something in the overall economy, which we are not seeing, uh, I mean, with, with all the, the latest, uh, the $2 trillion getting passed uh, as of yeah. today, I believe, uh, I think that should help to hold up till we pass this as long as we take right. the social distancing seriously and get through this. Yeah. So I think what this will manifest for, for shippers is that you're going to see some more routing guide failures. Um, it might be really geographically based, and we're also going to see correspondingly an increase in spot rates. So it might be a good opportunity to try to strengthen up some of your ties with brokers who can cover and backstop some of your loads and maybe strengthen some of your relationships with your core carriers over these these crazy times. Yeah, and also I think finally, uh, I mean, to let your carriers know the processes that are put in place so the drivers can feel comfortable and minimize the contact that they would have at both ends of the loading and unloading. Well, that wraps up this episode. The Freightvine podcast is hosted by Inam Ayub and myself and is produced and edited by Stephanie Bond and Abby Haney. To hear previous episodes, please visit our website at chainalytics.com slash Freightvine. You can subscribe to The Freightvine wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freightvine or suggestions for what you would like to hear in the future, please send an email to podcast at chainalytics.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freightvine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Music.